0: moments in English history, a group of small, brave English captains motivated by duty to queen and country took on the invincible armada of the Spanish Empire and won. The reality of the Spanish Armada is a bit more complicated, certainly men on both sides display their skill and bravery, but the story of the Armada is much more a story of the difficulties of naval warfare during the age of sail. Certainly men on both sides displayed their skill and bravery, but the story of the Armada is as much a story of the difficulties of naval warfare during the Age of Sail as it is one of English heroism against impossible odds, it's also a story that had something of an often underlooked sequel, a whole franchise in fact. But today, we'll be setting the stage of a look at the events of 1588 and a faithful voyage of Philip II's Great Armada that is most famous for sitting at the bottom of the sea.
1: (laughs) Always part of it is. yes, hello and welcome to the No One is Competent podcast. I am your co-host Jay and joining me today is Azalea. How are you doing?
0: Jay, when you introduce the podcast, you're not the co-host, you're just the host.
1: I mean, perhaps. That's one way of looking at it.
0: You're you're special, Jay. You research this shit. You come up with most of our our our, our ideas. You this is your show, baby. I'm just here to spice it up. Well, now you should change I'm the, the salt uh, the, the on the, the potatoes. <laughs> the 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 spices. You're the you 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 are the starchy long ki- carbohydrates that fill our stomachs and keep us warm in the winter months.
1: That's one way of looking at it. I do like potatoes, though.
0: I uh, made myself some, some mashed potatoes uh. 40 minutes ago. I didn't have milk, so I had to use half and half, but they, they turned out fluffy enough.
1: That sounds pretty good.
0: To me, the key of mashed potatoes is garlic, Obviously, you put salt and butter in, but pepper. You shouldn't taste the pepper, really. But you need just a little in there, otherwise the whole thing falls apart. It's key to the balance of flavors.
1: Actually, I've never made mashed potatoes, so I'll have to take your word for it.
0: Should uh, You should come down south and have some of my mashed potatoes. They're, 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 it's, it's pretty good. It's it's a fun thing to do. Like, it's not hard. Um, Also, like because you know you don't work in proportions you just kind of like so you have your mashed potatoes and then like you have your milk you got your butter you got your salt you got your pepper you got your garlic maybe whatever else you want in there and then you just sort of like start throwing things in and tasting it until it's good it's a very creative additive way of cooking that satisfies me on some sort of primal level and we need some satisfaction because this is Obviously, y'all are listening to this on the next weekend, but uh, the weekend of uh, June twenty uh, fifth and twenty sixth and twenty fourth and twenty seventh is not a fun time in America.
1: Perhaps not, though. I suppose we
0: we we, we at, at personally, I've been getting rough sleep lately. Things have been been crappy. We're we're pulling the. The show together on, we, we are currently recording this at uh, 10.50 at night, so I am, uh,
1: 10.50 is nothing, I was like, 10.50 is still, still basically the day, that <laughs> barely counts as night in
0: my opinion. We're, we're, we're gonna, we're gonna burn, we're gonna burn the candle a little bit, you know, <laughs> we're gonna, we're gonna take a little bit of of time we're gonna hype things up we're going to manufacture some goddamn emotionally <laughs> compelling entertaining podcast shit
1: though i hear that you know even though that's been perhaps not the best weekend there's a i know the congratulations that i should offer to you
0: yes uh, there there is some some fortunity, uh, When we release this podcast episode, it will be a week away from uh, Q returning uh, to post (laughs) for the first time in over 500 days. And you know what, Jay? Yeah. Frankly, the United States just deserves QAnon at this point. You know, (laughs) like, this is what you people deserve. I am burnt. I am dead. I am... I feel very in touch with 2017 Azalea that guy was really touching the void and just tap dancing around the death of the soul and I feel a bit like that inside you know we're kind of we're we're really nationally entering the stage of broken brilliance where you gotta die inside for it all to make sense you know
1: well, you know, I suppose there is something nice about the familiarity of things and twenty seventeen wasn't a bad year for me, so you know, bring on the uh QAnon, I suppose.
0: Jay, when you get drunk on a Friday night, you text your ex. When Ron Watkins <laughs> gets drunk and sad on a Friday night, he restarts a cult. It's wonderful.
1: <laughs> yeah probably just looking out for us just making sure that there's more content for this podcast
0: let it flow so before we jump into spanish armada just remember to follow us on twitter at azalea wyatt and at jharis48 email the podcast at no one is competent at gmail.com send us your episode suggestions touch base ask us questions whatever the fuck you want Well, we're, you know, we're just tap dancing monkeys for you. Our music is by the legendary Sam Bryce, and this is a show with no ads, no sponsors. So give us some love and rate and review us on whatever podcasting app you are listening to us on. Spanish Armada today, kind of a, more of a meme, honestly, than like a historical point. Like, I didn't I never studied the Spanish Armada much like in school school like in high school or college. It was a thing I was told of as as a kid. Yeah. It, it kind of feel it feels like a historical event similar to like the Pilgrims landing in America or you know uh 1492 Columbus sails the Ocean Blue like a a sort of
1: I think it's it's a big deal for the English where for them it'll be a bit like you know how, for us in school, you, you remember like Lexington and Concord and stuff like that. Uh, outside of England, it's very well known, especially in America, because again, you know, we are the descendants of the English if in culture, if not in blood. And but yeah, it, it's something that's known, but many people just don't really know the details of it.
0: Yeah, but it's also it's kind of weird because isn't is, I guess it does not feel like. It's important enough to justify as well-known as it is. Like, we, we don't really learn about it being... We're, we're going to talk about how the Spanish Armada is sort of an, an outcropping of many sort of historical forces and stories that were going on the decades prior leading up to it. But it, it kind of feels as sort of more of a singular event that just sort of happened than like part of the big, broader narrative of, say, modern European history.
1: Oh, very much so. A lot of it's because, you know, Britain is famous for their... Obviously, the British Empire is famous for their navy, for their skill at sea. And that's a big part of the British mythos, the bravery of their sailors. And because of that, the Armada kind of just gets transformed into one event In the long history of British victories at sea. And it's generally remembered alongside the likes of Trafalgar. Or um, if you go much later, you have like Dunkirk or the Battle of the Atlantic in World War II. And that kind of like strips it from its actual context in the 1500s. And just places it on, you know, the big list of British military victories.
0: Another fun quip before we jump in. This is actually the second historical event I remember learning about in school. Like, we really started history in my school in fourth grade, and I shit you not, the textbook was... The first thing that happened in history was Mansa Musa <laughs> going on a journey to the known world. And he and he was very rich. And the second thing that happened in history was spain tried to beat up england with an armada yeah i think i I got i got the. i I, I don't know why that's how i remember fourth grade but it's like mansa musa spanish armada american revolution i think i got like the the, the nine-year-old wyatt's history of the world
1: yeah I, i got like the normie american education so like if I had to think what the first historical event I learned about, probably Christopher Columbus, you know, um, or maybe like the pilgrims, probably Columbus.
0: But that's what I'm saying. This is like a big event. This is, this is a thing people, like, it almost feels like a myth to me. Like it's, it's like, like, like the Iliad. That That's like what, the Spanish Armada feels to me in my mind. Like, yeah. I know it's real, but it has this sort of tale esque I think maybe one thing that contributes
1: to guy. that is the fact that it's not known as, like... We don't refer to it as, like, the war or the battle of. It's just called the Spanish Armada. And, you know, you have the Battle of the Graveline and you have you know, the Anglo-Spanish War. We'll talk about that later. But for 99% of people, it is just called the Spanish Armada. But in any case, I suppose we've beat around the bush long enough. Uh, i probably just go straight to mentioning our sources. Today's episode is mostly based on Armada 1588, the Spanish Assault on England by John Barrett. Um, And I also based some of my research on Spanish Galleon 1530 to 1690, by Angus Constam. Now, in order to explain the rationale behind the attempted Spanish invasion of England in 1588, uh, we need to take a look at the political layout of Western Europe in the mid to late 16th century. While our story today does involve multiple nations, it's worth noting that nations in the 16th century differed greatly from our modern notion of the state. Almost every major European nation at the time was a monarchy, meaning that the affairs of state were often intrinsically tied to the affairs of its ruling dynasty. Marriages and inheritances could bring together multiple principalities and even kingdoms under a single ruler. Indeed, while we'll talk today extensively about Spain, at this point in time that nation was still technically a union between the kingdoms of Castile and Aragon, both of which maintain their own separate governing structures.
0: Yeah, you know, like, these days we think of a country as, like, a collection of people who just happen to be on a plot of land. But back then it was kind of more seen as there is land, the land has a name, and then that land is then owned by these royal families, and the people are just sort of there.
1: Yeah, they're part of the land.
0: Yeah, they... they Well... They, in many ways, they explicitly uh, came with when you yeah. had the, uh, say, the establishment of serfdom. Yeah. But this is not; th- these are not nation states as we modernly uh, conceptualize them. Their ability to directly affect things is far more limited than the way countries are run today. And the 1500s is this weird time in history where European countries are beginning to do some, like, really big things, right? They're starting to colonize the, the new world and move, move world history into what many see as a next phase. As imperialism's horrors and wealth extractions will create the conditions for a lot of the rest of the story. But at the same time, this is being done in a far less centralized way than we would like currently imagine it being done with our modern perception of how like a government works.
1: Oh, yeah. (laughs) As we'll see later, the uh, organization of these nations is definitely leaves a lot to be wanting compared to what we're more familiar with today.
0: Oh, yeah. Like, the highest advisors in the king's court in, like, 1560 are way less educated, competent, and good at organizing people than, say, the water comptroller of Fulton County (laughs) is today, (laughs) all right? Like, civil service outside of China and parts of the Islamic world was not exactly a a science at this point. (laughs) Very much so. By the start of the 1560s, there were four powers west of the Rhine River. France, Spain, England, and Portugal, with Spain and France being the most powerful out of that grouping. England was arguably the least powerful. In fact, for much of the last 500 years, it had kind of been just sort of, The backwater of Europe, often a trading partner of least resort, really. Out of the limelight of the proper continent. Yes. Prior to his death in 1558, the most powerful man in Europe by far, in a way, was the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V, a member of the Habsburg dynasty. You may remember them as the people with the malformed chins. Charles V had come to inherit both that family's ancestral lands in Austria as well as the territories of the kingdoms of Castile and Argonne, that's in Spain as a result of marriage politics. The immense power of Charles V caused enmity amongst the other nations of Europe side eye in this guy who is getting way too much land particularly France and faced the threat of prolonged warfare Charles agreed to divide his holdings upon his death. His brother Ferdinand would inherit the Eastern territories, becoming Holy Roman Emperor, while his son Philip would inherit the Western territories, becoming King Philip II of Spain. And Philip II will be one of the key players in the events of this episode. It's very interesting, Jay, when you consider how differently all of this would have played out if it was just 300 years in the future like it, it's kind of hard again with our modern conceptions of how states work when you look at charles v and how much he technically controlled like yeah in terms of words on a piece of paper we're like how did this guy not like set up a dynasty that went on to rule the world like how did this not become this juggernaut why did England go on to have the the massive uh Sun never sets Empire the that the branches of this powerful centralized state and and not uh Spain dominating all of the world yeah and like it's like we'd... well it's because states were weaker then like yeah. you could say you owe this lab but they're actually a bit Ability to raise taxes raise armies control the destinies of nations is just way hard that the, the dicks are basically just smaller all right they just can't get as deep into the vagina of change if you will
1: <laughs> i suppose a more uh pg-13 way of saying it would be that It was very much based on personal relationships and the relations between rulers and their vassals. And
0: that is the weirdest (laughs) analogy I have made on this podcast. I don't know where that came from. that was just off the top of my head. I didn't plan that.
1: Yeah, like Charles V and the Holy Roman Empire were certainly far less of a organized polity than you know France or England a few centuries down the line.
0: Why is that where my brain goes? I don't know. But anyway, Philip II is having one of the largest colonial inheritances. I mean, Spain was really the thing to get, right? Because Spain is currently raping its way across the entire continent system of the Americas. And uh, we could do an entire second episode on why Spain wasn't really able to, like, translate its massive colonial holdings on paper into, like, multi-century wealth the way that, say, the British would be able to do, but... If you looked at a map, at this point, Spain is currently becoming the largest nation to ever exist out of Europe, right? Yes. And that's on top of his holdings from that Habsburg dynasty, controlling the Low Countries, which is today Belgium and the Netherlands, as well as the Kingdom of Naples and Sicily. And in 1580... Philip would become the king of Portugal following a secession crisis in that country. And that meant by the time of Armada, Philip II ruled the various titles in Spain, Portugal, Flanders, the Netherlands, Burgundy, about half of Italy, the southern portion of North America, all of Central and South America, also coastal territories across Africa, India, the East Indies, and the Philippines. This is a massive space of land that this bitch is putting his claim on. And as we'll see, he is not really uh the the, the the man to to match this destiny, yeah, in my opinion, at least.
1: Though it's hard to imagine somebody who could.
0: Yeah, but like this is the 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 apex of of Habsburg ambition, right? Like they have spent at this point, centuries of, of political marriages yes. and, and, uh, politicking to rule all of Europe. They've, they've built the car. And what we're now going to see is as after all of those centuries of work, what's going to happen, you know, your Charles V was, was kind of, in many ways, he was a very conservative ruler, right? Kind of trying to hold everything together and keep everyone happy. Philip II is actually going to try and drive the car in this episode. He's going to try and and conquer England. Yeah. And and put all this to the test. And uh, it's amazing how fast uh, it can all come crashing down after you spend so much time to build it up.
1: Yeah. Now, the Spanish empire grew rich through slaves, spice cash crops, and perhaps most famously, the abundant silver of the South American mines. Though this wealth in silver would arguably become a factor behind poor economic policies on the part of the Spanish government. The government could always simply rely on digging up more silver to cover their expenses, and Spain ends up being hit by multiple waves of inflation, throughout the 1500s you know as you mentioned we could do a whole episode on imperial spanish economics (laughs) that sounds like a bit of a nightmare to research but
0: (laughs) yeah the the face when you dig so much silver out of argentina that you cause rampant inflation in china yeah like i love how spain Gets a hold of more money than anyone in Europe had ever been able to conceptualize, and, and they can't really do much with it. They, they kind of end up earning themselves really more than helping themselves by how little they understand how econo- basic economics works. Yeah. It's great.
1: Yeah. At the start of Philip II's reign, Spain's most significant enemy was France, not England. King Francis I of France had gone so far as to form an alliance with the Ottoman Empire, which was generally seen as the hated enemy of Christendom, in order to check Habsburg expansion during the reign of Charles V. If anything, Spain's enmity with France made Spain and England natural allies. Relations between Spain and England were typically positive, with the two maintaining close economic and political ties. Marriages between the royal families of Spain and England were common, and the relationship between the two countries was made even closer in 1554, when Philip II married Mary I, the Tudor Queen of England. Philip did have to agree to some limitations placed on his role by the English Parliament, who were quite wary of being forced to obey a foreign ruler. Namely, Philip would rule alongside Mary, and he would be recognized as the King of England but only so long as the marriage lasted. Still, it did for a time make him the co-ruler of England, during which time he genuinely sought to administer the country effectively, such as by rebuilding the English Navy, which had largely been neglected since the death of Henry VIII. Needless to say, he would probably come to regret that decision later on in his life.
0: However, while the period of co-rule by Philip and Mary can be seen as the high-water mark in Anglo-Spanish relations, not all was ideal as it seems. You see, England had become a predominantly Protestant nation during the reign of Henry VIII, and many Protestants viewed the Catholic Mary and her Spanish husband as agents of the Pope. Mary's attempts to establish Catholicism in England would... Earn her the sobriquet Bloody Mary amongst her enemies. This is sort of the second strand of our uh, story that we we are pulling from the broader history of Europe. Because, you know, what, uh, 100 years or so before this, uh, my man Martin Luther decided to nail 95 theses to a door and uh, kick off a entire, um, what, two decades, two, two centuries worth of war and slaughter? Quite a lot of war.
1: You know, it's debatable how much of that was truly re- religious in nature. But yes, quite a lot of violence has to do with the, uh, the divide between Catholicism and Protestantism.
0: The Protestant Reformation was incredibly uh, powerful in tearing Europe asunder. Perhaps the first time in history that posting has led (laughs) to uh, over a century of genocide on an entire continent. Not the last time that would happen, but probably the first. And England was a place where those wars of religion sometimes it was colder sometimes it was hotter but it has in no ways settled down in the mid 16th century we're in right now like i believe scotland is still mostly catholic at this point correct yeah ireland is of course entirely catholic yeah and there are still Still, a lot of Catholics being persecuted in England. You have times when they're being literally burned in the state at the stake in some situations. People are incredibly paranoid about Catholics. Just to give you like an idea of how paranoid the English are in Catholics. A hundred years after this, sixteen sixty six. London would be burned in a a famous fire, I think, because some guy, like, just left his stove burning for too long, and turns out it's not a great idea to build your city out of wood and all of your buildings, like, leaning close to each other so the fire can just jump from thing to thing, and... This is a whole thing. But anyway, after that, the the English just basically assumed that the Pope had ordered the city burned and just started killing random Catholic foreign merchants that were just around. Because <laughs> uh, they just assumed they had done it. Yeah. So there's, there's a lot of, of anti-Catholic sentiment in the country then and at this point. Queen Mary would die in 1558, and per his agreement with Parliament, Philip II renounced his title as the King of England, and as the marriage had produced no heirs, the throne went to Mary's Protestant sister, Elizabeth. And with this, the events that would result in the Spanish Armada were set in motion, though the actual causes of war were yet to come.
1: Philip II hung on to hope for a continued alliance after Mary's death, with the Spanish even proposing a new marriage between the king and the new English queen. Such proposals were shot down, however, and tensions between the two countries would gradually increase throughout the coming decades.
0: The way I was taught it in uh, European history class is this was kind of like a sort of. Uh... Failed rom com, sort of comedic series of Philip sends a letter proposing marriage, Elizabeth sends back, oh, I'll think about it maybe in a little bit, and this just continues for one year into the yeah, next well, year into a next it was the year. <laughs> Elizabeth did that with
1: a, p- a lot of guys. Um, very much so. But yeah. So, Spain's dominance of the Americas walked ships from other nations out of these most lucrative trade routes, leading to a rise in privateering, that being state-sanctioned piracy, in the 1560s. I
0: I, fuck, I gotta go off about privateering. I fucking love privateering. Like, it's such a more civilized way to fight. Fuck these standing armies. Fuck the draft. Fuck, fuck big... Warships and tanks and planes. And shit. Nah, just pay a dude to go out and fuck people up. No planning, no targets, no 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 fucking tactics, no no grand operations. Just a dude with a letter of mark and his boys going out and picking fights on the open sea.
1: Most of the time, you wouldn't even pay the privateer. You would just say, you're allowed to do this, and you have to give me, you know, like half of the the bounty or whatever, half of everything you get. But yeah. So the majority of these privateers were French at this point in time, but English captains increasingly got in on the action as well, with Elizabeth herself giving them approval to raid Spanish fleets, despite the fact that the two nations were not at war. It's worth noting that the line between piracy and trade was very blurry in the 16th century, with many mm. captains and crews acting as legitimate traders one voyage and turning to privacy on the next. This caused the Spanish to view English ships with great suspicion. In 1568, the Spanish attacked and destroyed the an English merchant fleet at the Battle of San Juan de Ulia incensing the English, even though the commander of said fleet, John Hawkins, was indeed a privateer. Incidents such as this pushed English sentiment in favor of the privateers and further deepened the rift between England and Spain. England supported these so-called sea dogs as a, mean of bo- as a means of both enriching the crown, which took a share of their profits, and asserting her power.
0: Relations were further damaged due to the outbreak of open rebellion in the Spanish Netherlands in 1566. England's merchants had a close relationship with their counterparts in the Low Country going back to the Hundred Years War. This relationship, combined with religious sympathies for the Calvinist Dutch in their fight against the Catholic Spanish, led to English citizens supporting their cause. While Elizabeth was reluctant to directly aid the Dutch, partially out of a fear of antagonizing Philip too greatly and partially out of her general distrust of rebels, she was convinced by her advisors to not take action against those who aided or joined the rebellion. Here we see Elizabeth in her classic role as the make promises to everybody and try and piss off nobody, which of course ends up pissing off everybody, but... She's, she's the balancing <laughs> uh, act, tightrope queen of the English. Now, as a result of this increasing enmity, many of the Spanish court considered supporting Catholic Mary Stuart's reign to the English throne. Philip, purificated due to Mary's close relation with France, putting a Catholic on the throne of England was no use if said Catholic then supported Spain's enemy. A strong France might have prevented a Spanish attack on England, but this check on Spanish power was removed due to an outbreak of a religious civil war in France between Catholics and Protestants. Again, this one story of the Spanish Armada is part of the much broader story of the religious war that is constantly engulfing Europe in this time and for the century after this. Like... That's the main story. There are these monarchs who want to acquire territory and make these grand plans, you know, extract riches from far-off lands to uh, empower their great empire, build these armies and armadas, but everyone keeps getting distracted by the fact that every five years, we got to pick up spears and kill each other because this guy believes in predestination.
1: Yeah. And, you know, it's kind of common now to try to, like, separate out different things as, like, the cause of historical events. You'll say, like, this was the economic cause, and this was the political cause, and this was the religious cause, and, you know, which important one was the most important. In reality, religion was a part of everybody's mindset. You know, if you ask me, do I think the Spanish Armada is mostly caused by religion, I would say no. But... Philip II, as we'll get to later, was a devout Catholic. And in his mind, whatever pushed him to invade England was totally justified due to the religious element of the war. And religion permeated everything in a way that makes it hard to separate out from those other factors.
0: We often, looking back at history as we are a far more secular society now we kind of assume that people back then were lying about how much religion motivated their actions and we can often really not conceptualize how important religion was to people back then yeah but you know as we are getting a uh master class on in america right now The ruling class is really great. Always has been at like just having a so-called religion and then just basically paying people to tell them that whatever they are doing is considered holy and good by that religion and sort of using that as a uh motivator to inflate their own egos yeah not only am i going to go out and conquer this rebel nation but uh god fucking wills that i do so it's (laughs) gonna be great
1: yeah in the end the actual decision to go to war seems to have come about by a miscalculation of intent by the late 1570s the english seemed to have thought that war with spain was inevitable and that Philip was preparing every day to invade and restore Catholicism to their country. This impression was furthered when Spanish volunteers supported an uprising in Ireland in 1579.
0: Very Furthermore, close to home.
1: Yeah, yeah, indeed. Furthermore, the English feared that without a strong rival in France, Spain would come to dominate Western Europe. England thus set about openly aiding the Dutch as they represented England's only real potential allies in the war against Spain. The Spanish, meanwhile, came to view the English as standing in their way of their attempt to defeat the Dutch rebellion, and assumed that the English were fully committed to making war in Spain. Talk of the English as heretics increased as the repression of Catholics in England ramped up under Elizabeth. In reality, neither Philip II nor Elizabeth I strongly desired a war between their two countries but their mutual misinterpretations and actions drove them to it. Mm. In 1585, Elizabeth signed a treaty with the Dutch, making their alliance official. The same year, she dispatched the privateer Francis Drake on a raiding mission, during which he attacked and plundered Spanish outposts across the New World. The war that is most commonly referred to simply as the Anglo-Spanish War had begun. Two years later, in 1587, Elizabeth had her cousin Mary Stuart executed after her government uncovered a Catholic plot to kill Elizabeth and put Mary on the throne. This plot might not have
0: been able to tell, audience, because Jay's voice is so uh, famously exuberant, but uncovered there was in quotes as, you know, whether or not the plot was real is... She ended up dead it was real who cares yeah.
1: and of course this plot was alleged to have Spanish support in reality Philip II was not really a strong supporter of Mary's cause due to you know the French connection we mentioned earlier but her death served him well by incensing Catholic Europe and ensuring papal support for a war against Elizabeth. The Pope would actually bless the armada and technically speaking, it is considered a crusade in that like it did get the uh the, the same kind of a papal blessing as the crusades got in response to these attacks they
0: still thought that that was a <laughs> and those knows it all famously gone well yeah. <laughs> as we have already covered on this podcast
1: though the pope uh it was pope sixtus um he wasn't he was also kind of wary of the Habsburgs because i mean the pope at this point in time, is an Italian prince. You know, he rules land, mm-hmm. and he was worried that the Habsburgs were a bit too powerful. So while he did bless the um, armada, he said, I'll give you money for it, but only after you actually conquer England. If you don't do it, you're not getting any money. <laughs> now, in response Possibly to the these...
0: smartest guy involved in this episode.
1: Yep, <laughs> indeed. Now, in response to these attacks, Philip II committed fully to an invasion of England. The Spanish had been drawing up plans for an attack on England since 1582, and now those plans would become a reality. Ships and men were called up and organized for this grand armada, which would end up being launched in May of
0: 1588. Yeah, I feel like people often forget that part. Is like, the plan was not to have a, a big old sea battle. The plan was to win a big old sea battle and, and then invade the fucking country. Yeah. And make it so... You and I would be uh, you know, speaking the uh, España right now. <laughs> the ultimate commanders-in-chief on both sides of the Anglo-Spanish War were the two nations' respective monarchs, King Philip II and Queen Elizabeth. And let's now go over their uh, sort of two independent spheres of uh, expertise, what they have going for them, what the plans are what not now Philip II on the Spanish side was a competent administrator and generally had a good eye for talent he was however prone to indecision and provocation often preferring to wait out situations and hope they could resolve themselves this is a classic trait of weak indecisive then, oh, it'll all just sort itself out. And that also means I don't have to make a hard decision and then have egg on my face when that hard decision doesn't work out. But instead, you just sort of gradually let things go to shit around you and the egg is cracked all on its own. While religion should not be seen as the main factor that pushed Philip to War with England, It is certain that he was a devout Catholic and likely believed that his mission, which did receive official blessing from the Pope, was one of moral righteousness. The Armada would free England's Catholics from Protestant oppression and potentially even return England to the Catholic fold. Philip's first choice to lead the Spanish Armada was Marquis of Santa Cruz, an experienced naval commander who had taken part in several battles. Most notably, the Battle of Lepanto. Santa Cruz was in charge of the Armada for much of its early preparation, but his death in 1588 led to Philip picking a replacement, probably with a lot of huff and panic, the Duke of Medina, Sidonia. Now... Medina Sidonia was a respected bureaucrat, but he lacked any significant military experience on land or at sea, something he himself pointed out to the king. Now, Philip's rationale behind picking this dude who has never really commanded troops in the field before remains a topic of debate to this day, and is often cited as one of the main reasons for the Armada's eventual defeat. In any case, while Medina Sidonia may have been a reluctant leader, he was effective at organizing and equipping the armada. This is a bureaucrat, after all, and getting it ready to sail. Medina Sidonia was advised on naval manners by his chief of staff, Diego Flores de Valda, a man who did have experience fighting at sea. And... Jay, I don't really think a uh, dude good at organizing uh, meetings and filing paperwork is going to be much good when the cannons are firing and ships are on fire.
1: I mean, <laughs> he actually wrote a letter to Philip um, saying that he shouldn't be uh, chosen because he's prone to becoming seasick. But Philip was like, no, you're, you're in charge. <laughs> good luck. <laughs> to his credit, I mean, we'll talk about him later on. I think he was... He ended up showing that he was pretty brave. Like he puts his own ship in the thick of action on several occasions, but he's not a great naval, you know, mind and he was never, he had never commanded a ship in war prior to this. So you can't really blame him for it. Now, while Medina Sidonia commanded the Spanish Navy, the army would primarily be under the leadership of Philip's nephew, the Duke of Parma. Parma was a talented general, and he was the head of the Spanish army of Flanders, uh, this being the Spanish army that was based in the Low Countries. In this rule, he had managed to secure a string of victories against the Dutch. The Spanish plan of attack was as follows. Medina Sidonia would oversee the organization and equipment of the vast armada of ships in Lisbon, Portugal. This fleet, consisting of both warships and transports, loaded with soldiers, would then sail up to the, around the tip of France through the English Channel and rendezvous with Parma's forces near Calais, which lies opposite of Dover at the narrowest part of the English Channel. Here, the Armada would meet up with Parma's army, which was around 30,000 strong. Parma had his own fleet of barges and small boats, and the Armada would thus be responsible for escorting Parma's fleet across the Channel and protecting them as they landed in England. Parma would subsequently march on London and either force some sort of treaty on the English or install a new pro-Spanish government. We won't really talk about it because, spoiler alert, Parma's army never gets to land, but the English army at this point in time was pretty terrible. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> to their I their to
0: 30,000 men would definitely fuck up England.
1: At the, the point, Spanish yeah. army was considered with pretty good reasoning the best in europe around this point in time you know their tercio system was um, very strong their soldiers are all professionals the english are mostly relying on militia a lot of the troops that they gather up you know in preparation for the invasion will still have bows and arrows which are about a century out of date by now and england had no modern fortifications so it's The idea of Parma just landing and going and taking London sounds kind of dumb, but if you could actually get ashore, it was pretty reasonable.
0: Now, on the English side, it is sometimes difficult to accurately assess Queen Elizabeth I of England, due mainly to the fact that she and her court were masters of propaganda, expertly shaping her image in a way that remains powerful to this day the uh the elizabethan era it's named after her you know she was a patron of shakespeare this lady gets infinitely good press the famous virgin queen of england with all of her virtues and her beauty and her blah 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 the stereotypical image of Elizabeth was one of a stern, strong-minded woman with her willingness to take action frequently held in contrast to Philip's tendency to procrastinate. In reality, we've already talked about how that's bullshit. Uh, Elizabeth, Elizabeth was just as prone to putting things off and uh, you know, giving people uh, sort of mixed ideas of what she was going to do next. She was far less bold than she was sometimes made out to be in reality, but she was an intelligent and effective ruler. Uh, you gotta remember, a huge message of this podcast is that the things that you think are hard or important are a lot less hard than you think they are, or at least they've been done well by people who are a lot stupider than you. Yeah. Yeah. You could have probably done just as good a job ruling England as Elizabeth (laughs) I, alright? It's actually surprisingly not that difficult. Compared to Philip, she was willing to leave more of the actual planning to her subordinates, which would prove to be a wise decision. The primary commander of the English Navy was its Lord High Admiral Baron Howard of Effingham. (laughs) epic ham. I'm six years old. Like medina Sidonia, Howard lacked significant naval experiences prior to his appointment. As such, he generally deferred to his subordinates, most notably his second command, Sir Francis Drake, Sir John Hawkins, and Martin Frobisher, that's a fucking stupid name, all established privateers. You know, this this is the, the big nobleman who's put in charge to, like, be the fancy guy, the fancy uniform, and then the privateers are actually going to be, you know, ordering people around and knowing what the fuck we're going to do. Drake was a highly experienced captain, having fought the Spanish on numerous occasions by then. He'd gone All over the new world, taking plunder and encountering weird, uh, zombies. That would then be, uh, the centerpiece of one of the worst games to ever be (laughs) on the PS3. God. Jay, have you ever tried to play Uncharted 1? No. Uncharted 1 is like a barely functional piece of software. Okay. Like. The game's shooting is so bad that you you, you can barely tell like where your reticle is go when you put the the point push the zoom in button. The melee combat basically does not function the way they say it's going to. Everything feels like shit. It's gummy as hell. It the the oh the fucking jet ski sections. My god. I have played some shitty fucking games while editing this podcast. <laughs> let me tell you. Um, but anyway, yada, yada, yada. Francis Drake, uh, 1577 to 1580. He circumnavigates the globe. He attacks Spanish ports. The Spanish demand that he be executed. Yada, yada. He returns to England. Qu- uh, Queen Elizabeth knights him aboard his sh- ship the golden hind which was apparently pretty cool despite being named the golden hind he's the big cool chad guy privateer rah 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 everybody loves francis drake
1: <laughs> I, I like how that was your first thought my, my thought with francis drake is, is always just fake grand order but but yeah um.
0: listen buddy if you had to play <laughs> through the fucking jet ski sections of uncharted 1 you would also be similarly traumatized instead of thinking of your damn waifu simulator
1: the, the best way to defend against the armada was a point of debate amongst the english many favored basing their fleet near dover on the eastern end of the channel where it could intercept the spanish as they crossed the channel you know if you've seen an image we'll have images on the youtube video as usual But if you know what the English Channel looks like, you know there's a very narrow point between Dover and Calais. This is where most people think they should put the fleet. Drake, however, was in favor of basing the English fleet in Plymouth, which is right at the western end of the channel. Drake pointed out that if the English were based in the east, they would be giving up the weather gauge to the Spanish, as the winds over the channel primarily move from west to east. Howard eventually agreed with Drake and his plan was chosen. To briefly explain the weather gauge, basically that means, and this is a bit of a simplification, you want the wind behind you. So if the wind Mm -hmm. is moving from west to east, you want your fleet to be the west of the enemy's fleet, because that way you can sail at them with the wind to your back, they have to sail upwind in order to reach you.
0: Yeah, and while lateen sails had already, you know, are are fully a thing at this point in history, tacking upwind is still really really hard. Yeah, and incredibly we'll... <laughs> difficult. Oh
1: yeah, we'll we'll get to that. But yeah. Now, the English plan of defense was as follows. The English fleet would gather in Plymouth and await news for the Armada's arrival in the channel. At that point, they would let the Armada pass by and then begin to chase after it harrying the Spanish and maintaining the weather gauge all along the way. This would disrupt the ability of the Armada to link up with Parma and help his men across the Channel.
0: Now when most people think about warfare in the Age of Sail, they conjure up an image that's generally based on the time around the American Revolution or the Napoleonic Wars. Maybe you go back a little further, maybe 1680s, and you think of the Golden Age of Piracy, but... This is happening far before all of that, at a time when European navies and their ships were far less advanced. Countries in the 1500s, quite simply, did not have large navies in the modern sense of the word. The amount of ships directly owned by the central government was generally quite low. At times of war, the government would instead impress ships, often their crews, owned by noblemen, merchants, fishermen, etc. As a result, neither the Spanish nor the English fleets during this conflict are made up entirely of what we would call warships, which is to say, ships built purposely for the sake of battle. Again, states at this point in history are, Aren't what we think of them now. They don't have a lot of money to, like, build and, like, maintain a standing navy at all times. Said most of the time, the ships that are exist are, are built, you know, for the economic forces. You know, they're built to carry goods from one port to another, make money. Yeah. But, as it turns out, there's nothing stopping you from putting a bunch of guns and soldiers on ships that do that. On the Spanish side, they had around 130 ships as part of their armada. And remember, that's really just the Spanish word for fleet or navy. Of these, only around 20 vessels were actually purpose-built warships, the so-called galleons. Spain's galleons were the most powerful warships in her navy. These were... Amazingly huge ships, three or four masted, square-rigged warships, generally between 100 and 150 feet in length. Smaller galleons carry between 20 and 30 cannons apiece, while the largest galleons carried around 50. Crews ranged from between 90 to 120 in size. The main weapon of a galleon was not her guns, however, but her soldiers. In addition to the ship's regular crew, each galleon would have housed a large contingency of naval infantry, what we might now call marines. Boarding was the primary tactic of the Spanish, as it had been for most navies over a course of a thousand years. Spanish ships would close range of the enemy, fire off their guns to cripple the ship, then board the enemy and overwhelm them in melee combat. Spanish infantry, both on land and at sea, was often considered the best in Europe, and this tactic had won the Spanish several victories. Now, Spanish ships could and did rely on artillery to win battles, but generally only against significantly weaker foes. Spanish guns were mounted in two-wheel gun carriages and lashed to the side of the ships to absorb recoil. This made reloading a slow process, you gotta take it out of that, fit it back in you get the, the shot and everything and the spanish did not really train to reload guns during battle guns would typically be fired once and reloaded after the battle yeah damn that's really fucking stupid <laughs> that that
1: i mean it's more or less just the way it was done i mean to do otherwise was pretty unnormal because again boarding was the tactic you know going back to you think like the the romans beating the carthaginians and because you just board their ships and and fight out hand to hand
0: no one really was competent were they jay
1: <laughs> yeah a few just, people just... are i mean this is taking a massive detour but we may one day do an episode on the attempted japanese invasion of korea which occurs around the same point in time in the 1590s that is and
0: that would be a good episode
1: you know what there's a a brilliant korean admiral who like wins several victories because he's like i'm just gonna use my ships and their guns to shoot at the japanese and not let them board (laughs) you know not not let them board our vessels and it works very well
0: yeah, if, if if you're wondering how low the bar was at this point in history, shoot the gun more than one time is considered a brilliant tactic.
1: Now the armada also contained a squadron of four napolitan galleuses, and that was sort of a hybrid design combining elements of the wind-powered galleon with the oar powered mediterranean galley. These ships had both sails and long rows of oarsmen, theoretically giving them a greater ability to maneuver in low winds. The rest of the armada was made up of armed merchant ships. These would not be entirely useless in the fight, but they were substantially slower, less maneuverable, and less well-armed than the warships. Both the galleons and the merchant ships could sail upwind by tacking, but this was a very slow process and nearly impossible in certain weather conditions.
0: I want to go on a little tangent here because I actually have spent a significant part of my life sailing a sailboat. Uh, So remember we mentioned that those big galleons were square-rigged, okay? Which basically means that their sail is just a giant tent that's been propped on the side to catch the wind and have the wind push the ship forward. This is all well and good, but... When you have a fully when you're only using square rig sails it means you can only go where the wind wants to shove you. And when you go upwind, when you go the direction the wind's pointing, you have to do so with this process called tacking where you basically cut at Probably actually wasn't as good as a 45 degree angle in that days, but somewhere close to a 45 degree angle back and forth across where the wind's coming from, because obviously you can't go directly into it. And this process of tacking basically means shifting the entire ship over uh, by like 60, 45 degrees. The whole thing's got to swing. All of the the sails have to swing. It's a big, long process, especially for a a huge ship like these 100-foot behemoths that we're talking about. And you, you don't have a lot of speed while doing that. And this is why the English decision to try and get the weather advantage is so smart and why that's going to be important, why they were thinking about it, because... If you can use the wind against these guys, their, their ability is not just cut in half. I would say it's reduced to basically a quarter of what it was before in terms of their ability to close in on you and do what they really want to do, which is catch up to you and then stab you with a sword. Yeah. If they don't have the wind, they don't have the maneuverability, and they can't get to you, they can't do that.
1: Indeed. Now, contrary to popular belief, the English actually had more ships in their disposal than the Spanish, around 190 in total. However, mm. many of these ships were small vessels that would play no role in actual combat, and not all of them were available at any given point in time. Basically what happens is after this battle, they'll make a list of like every ship that contributed to the effort. A lot of them is just like, Oh, this was some guy's small little fishing ship, and he sailed up to a warship and delivered them like five cannonballs. So he gets on the list of contributing to the effort, but like they have like almost 200 ships. Most of those are not the (laughs) warships. In terms of warships, the English had around 30 or 40 galleons. Many of these were what was called the race-built galleon, and that was a style of ship developed by the English privateers. A race built galleon was similar to a regular galleon, but with a narrow beam and a lower fore and aft castle. Compared to the Spanish galleons, they were faster and more maneuverable, but they would be at a disadvantage in boarding actions due to their smaller size and lower overall height.
0: And you know they're 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 built to a formula and they go around. Uh a much more creative track or maybe you use them in rally racing you (laughs) know because this is european and whatnot right yeah
1: well raced here comes from like raised and you think of like raised as to if you raise something you lower it or you demolish it um because the early raised galleons or raised bill galleons were literally just galleons with like their top decks cut off Um, at this point in time they are purpose-built warships
0: I'm looking at the same document you're looking at. It's R-A-C-E, race-built yeah, spelling, Spellings comes were not super the same consistent. Word raised.
1: Spellings were not super consistent in the 16th century.
0: <laughs> ah, yes. Not even the fucking words are competent at this point <laughs> in history.
1: Now, the English had an advantage in terms of quality of gunnery over the Spanish. Their ships possessed a greater number of long-range demi-culverins. And these were cannons that fired a ball weighing roughly nine pounds. Additionally, many of the English cannons were mounted in four-wheel carriages that could be more easily reloaded during a fight than the two-wheeled carriages um, the Spanish were using. While the Spanish would average about one shot per day with their large cannons, the English could get off basically about one shot per hour.
0: Revolutionary. <laughs> now, both the Spanish and English fleets had their advantages and disadvantages. In total, the English had more ships and more guns available to them over the course of their campaign. Their ships were more maneuverable, and their guns had the greater advantage range. Uh, question J: Are these guns rifled at this point in history?
1: No, these are all these uh, all these cannons are all smooth bore.
0: So you are, you, this is the real spray and pray. Yes. (laughs) This is the real just like aim it, shoot it, and you know, maybe you will hit the broadside of a barn from inside the barn. Yes. The Spanish had more soldiers aboard their ships, and while their cannons had a shorter average range, they had a greater average weight of shot, so they'll do more damage. Combined, these factors meant that shorter-range engagements would favor the Spanish, where long-range fights would typically favor the English. The English fleet was far more divided than the Spanish, and their total forces never joined up at any given point in time, meaning that on any given engagement, the Spanish typically had numerical superiority, though the difference was less lopsided than it would be made out to be after the fact.
1: Yeah, you know, the Armada is remembered as, like, you know, the plucky underdogs. It's it's very much one of those kinds of stories. The English are usually outnumbered, but it's not by a huge margin in most of these engagements.
0: On to the campaign itself. Spanish preparations for the attack on England began in 1587. Due to the immense size of such an operation, secrecy was impossible, and news of the Armada soon reached England. Francis Drake led a raid on chaldees in april 1587 successfully sinking and damaging over 20 large ships and thereby delaying the invasion attempt to the next year damn that's actually really significant
1: yeah (laughs) now in spite of drake's raid by may of 1588 the spanish armada was ready to go and set sail from their primary port of lisbon in portugal medina sidonia had been quite successful in building up his fleet. And under his command, the Armada good departed. Bureaucrat. Yep, yeah. And under his command, the Armada departed for the Channel on May tenth, fifteen eighty-eight. Now, here I'm just going to talk a little about a little bit about dates. Uh, if you start reading about the Armada, the dates might seem all over the place. There's actually a very good reason for that. Spain at this point is Catholic, and the Catholics have oh, no. all switched over to the Gregorian oh, calendar. No. The Protestants, on the other hand, are still using the Julian calendar. So for Fuck. <laughs> so for any event, uh, you will have two dates. The source I'm using goes with the Gregorian dates, so that's what we'll be talking using for this episode.
0: Allow me to also uh, add in that uh, the Russians were uh, Julian style for like almost 400 years even after this yeah <laughs> uh
1: now while the departure I, of
0: <laughs> i just i just I know this isn't how it works, but I'm just imagining, like, an Englishman at a, at, a, at a Spaniard, like, meeting on the field of battle, and the Spaniard goes, It's a fine Tuesday to kill you. Is it, what do you mean? It's Saturday! <laughs> that, 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 that wasn't the difference of the, the, the calendars, but yeah. it's, it's so funny to think about.
1: Now, the departure of the Armada was celebrated with great fanfare, but fate almost immediately seemed to begin to turn against the Spanish. Just prior to setting sail, Medina Sidonia received a letter from the Duke of Parma informing him that disease had reduced the 30,000 strong army of Flanders to just 17,000 men. Weather also proved unkind, and after departing the harbor, their fleet was trapped at the mouth of the Tagus River for two weeks due to unfavorable winds. if you're not familiar with Lisbon, Lisbon is a little bit inland, but it's on a river. Um, it's actually a, a very good harbor, one of the best uh, strategic harbors in the world, which is probably why they built their fleet there. Um, but to get out, you go through the Tagus. They're basically just stuck in the mouth of the Tagus for two weeks doing nothing <laughs> because of the wind.
0: I, I really like this episode, Jay. Like This is a just fucking master course on <laughs> how like lame and stupid... The pre-modern world was (laughs) and like how we love to believe that history is made by people, by by humans making decisions. And really, it's like, oh, well, you know, half your fucking army gets killed by some fucking microscopic organism you won't know about for another 250 years. And then, like, you can't move for two more weeks because the winds are being unkind and your sails suck because every all of your technology is shit. And you can't do Jack, you small, stupid man.
1: Now, the Armada was finally able to make their way out of the Tagus by May 30th, but then they're hit by winds that pushed them even further south. It wasn't until June 17th that the Armada was finally able to round the northwestern tip of Spain, by which time it had been discovered that most of the food and water stored aboard the ships had turned foul, and had to be thrown overboard as dysentery spread through the cruise.
0: Oh, this is this is giving me flashbacks to the uh, to, to the uh, to the, the Mongols, Mongolian yeah. invasion of a <laughs> Japan episode. I, I mean, dysentery is a bad time, but like to have dysentery on a ship is just fucking like that's just fucking rude by nature.
1: Yeah. Spain's fortunes were further worsened when a storm hit the Armada in the Bay of Biscay, forcing the ships to seek uh, shelter in Corona. Corona is a uh, port in northern Spain. Medina Sidonia and many of his top commanders had by now very severe doubts about the feasibility of the entire plan. Uh, You know, Medina will write letters to the king saying, I don't think this is gonna work, (laughs) but Philip stuck with it nonetheless. It wouldn't be until the 23rd of July that the Armada was finally able to set sail towards England. Their progress had been very slow, even by the standards of the day. Of course, another storm hit, forcing four galleons and one transport ship to abandon the voyage.
0: So, do the the English, like, know where they are at all points of this? Do, like, they know all they're held up at this port, or do, do they have an idea where they're, when, like, like, how close they are?
1: Not really. Occasionally, some Spanish ship will get, like, you know, blown out by one of the storms, and the an English ship or a merchant ship or whatever will spot it, but they don't really know exactly where the Spanish fleet is. You know, they're not shadowing the Spanish fleet. Okay. Finally, on the morning of the 30th of July, 1588, the main force of the Spanish Armada was sighted off the coast of Cornwall by English watchtowers. So now, at the end of July, they know where they are. Word quickly reached Drake and Howard, and the English fleet prepared to set sail and attack the enemy. There is a famous story about this, that Drake was playing a game of bulls. Um, bulls is basically just bowling, but you do it on grass. And that's when he receives news of the Spanish. And he basically says, well, we have enough time to finish our game, and then we can go beat the Spanish. It's Probably not true, but it would have been possible because based on the way the tides work, this English were not going to get out of Plymouth, you know, right then and there.
0: What a fucking dick. <laughs> it is often said that medina Sidonia gave up a final chance for total victory on July 30th. The English ships based in Plymouth Harbor would not be able to leave until the tie went out on the evening of that date. Had the Spanish attacked the English at anchor, they may have been able to destroy or capture the bulk of the English fleet, and indeed many experienced commanders under medina Sidonia recommended such a plan of attack. In reality, however, the window of opportunity for an attack was very narrow, and given the speed of the Armada, it is unlikely they would have reached Plymouth Harbor before the English were able to leave. The Spanish may still have held an advantage in a fight near the harbor, but Medina Sidonia decided to press on, cited the need to follow the king's original orders, like the dutiful little bureaucrat he is.
1: Yeah, and this is something which I didn't put in the outline, but uh, you'll have a kind of different culture in the two navies, where the Spanish officers very much are trying to follow, you know, the orders of King Philip, more or less to the T. The English captains have a lot more leeway to interpret orders as they see fit and kind of take action as they see fit.
0: Yeah, these are privateers that are used to, like, kind of running their their, their own gig and doing their own things out in the field. Yeah. The first skirmish of the campaign would occur on July 31st, the day after the Armada was first sighted. Howard and Drake had taken their ships out of Plymouth Harbor just, in head of, just ahead of the Spanish before tacking into the westerly winds in order to gain the weather gauge and form up the rear of the Spanish. They accomplished this and began at their attack around 9 a.m. The Spanish Armada, consisting of roughly 120 ships by now, was arrayed in a crescent formation with the bulk of their ships, including Medina Sidonia's flagship, San Martín, at the center, and the two prongs sweeping backwards. This formation was strong and effective at protecting the weaker transport vessels, but it made tacking and complex maneuvers difficult. The English, who had around 40 to 50 ships, attacked in a short line or echelon formation. Their ships, including Howard's flagship, Ark Royal, took turns closing range of the Spanish, firing their cannons, and then retreating to reload before repeating this process. They were careful not to get in close range of the Spanish, knowing full well the Spanish would have a decisive edge if allowed to board their ships. So, Jay, I'm imagining almost kind of a drive-by. You have this line of English ships sort of passing by the Spanish firing, and then sort of moving on so the next guy behind them can fire.
1: Yeah, that's more or less kind of what happened.
0: The overall result of the action off of Plymouth, which took place over several hours, was fairly indecisive, as drive-bys tend to be. The English had succeeded in impressing the Spanish with their speed and seamanship, drive-bys do tend to be impressive, and suffered very few losses. However, their fear of closing the distance with the Spanish meant that they had fired their guns off at an extreme range. 16th century cannons were inaccurate weapons in the best of circumstances. On a moving platform, such as a ship, hitting anything beyond a few hundred yards was very unlikely. Most English shots missed entirely, and little damage was inflicted upon the Armada. But on the bright side, a bunch of fish did get lead poisoning.
1: (laughs) Yeah. The night of the 31st would prove to be an interesting and dangerous one for both sides. The Spanish galleon San Salvador, which was one of the most powerful ships in the Armada, exploded suddenly as a result of a powder accident.
0: You gotta be fucking kidding me.
1: (laughs) Another galleon, the Rosario, was left behind by the Armada after suffering damage due to colliding with two other Spanish ships. Rosario would be captured later that night by Drake's personal ship, the Revenge. On the English side, the flagship Ark Royal was following the stern light of another English ship, only to discover that said ship was actually a Spanish vessel. A Spanish officer proposed attacking Ark Royal, which had become dangerously separated from the main English forces, but Medina Sidonia turned down the request, and Ark Royal was able to fall back and rejoin the English fleet.
0: So you have the two, two of the most powerful states in Europe trying to destroy each other and a comedy of errors ensuing in this process.
1: Yeah, very
0: much so. This is, this, this is great.
1: Now, the second battle of the campaign would occur on August 2nd off of the Isle of Portland. This battle was a far more confused affair with the two fleets becoming interspersed after a shift in winds briefly gave the Spanish the weather gauge. In contrast to the well-coordinated action off of Plymouth, the Battle of Portland devolved into a series of separate fights between elements of the English and Spanish fleets. They're basically all just mixing it up and trying to kill each other. At one point in time, San Martin, that being Medina Sidonia's flagship, found itself fighting Ark Royal and several other English ships at musket range, though the English, ever wary of boarding actions, failed to capture the Spanish flagship. In general, the battle was again largely indecisive, and the Spanish fleet was able to continue making headway towards the east on the following day.
0: So, so far, the English are, you know, they're, they're keeping pace, and they're still in the fight, but they haven't really done much good at, destroying the enemy yeah the indecisive melee off of Portland would repeat itself a few days later at our third battle off the Isle of Wight again the two fleets came into conflict this time at the instigation of the English who thought that the Spanish would attempt to land and capture the island just as the French had done in 1545 John Hawkins ship victory was heavily involved in the fighting as was frobisher's triumph and even lord admiral's own ark royal on the spanish side medina Sionis san martin joined the action as did the galleys g-
1: g- galleys
0: g- i hate the english language <laughs> galleys san lorenzo giornia and zungia Several Spanish ships attempted to grapple and board their English counterparts, but failed to do so due to the superior speed of the English. Again, the battle was indecisive, though it served to boost the morale of the English, who thought they had thwarted a Spanish landing. maybe I, I thought this was American thing it might just be a fucking english speaking thing of of yeah we we won this <laughs> the, this big important thing that wasn't really go- going to happen in the first place
1: I think it's a uh, that's
0: dope you World you gotta manufacture your story you gotta control the narrative jay that's that's how you become a winner all right you know how you be a winner Jay You need to say that you won things, okay? That's all you do. Following the action off the Isle of Wight, the English fleet temporarily gave up their harassment of the armada, and instead took the time to regroup and receive supplies and reinforcements. This was highly important, as the fast rate at which the English were able to fire their guns meant that the fleet was now running precariously low on ammunition. This lull gave Medina Sidonia time to finally reach Calais and meet up with Parma's army. There was, however, one problem. Sidonia had no real idea where Parma would actually be. The original plan for the attack left the rendezvous point for Armada and Parma's forces vague. You know... That, that famous, important trait of a rendezvous point, being that you don't really know where it is. <laughs> <laughs> For much of the voyage, Sidonia seems to have been hoping that Parma's forces would load up on their barges and small boats and meet the armada at sea. Parma, on the other hand, was fearful of his largely defenseless vessel being attacked by the Dutch at sea and said waited on land. Medina Sidonia had sent several messengers to Parma throughout the campaign, but none had managed to reach him in time. So you have the military commander making the smart and conservative military decision to not risk his bid. You have the bureaucrat totally not thinking about that factor, and just sort of hoping that the dude would be where he wanted him to be. Oh, it's... (laughs) <laughs> it's it's beautiful it's bu- you know jay i was honestly kind of skeptical when you watched this episode because <laughs> i thought oh aren't we just gonna talk about how like the english just outranged them and then they just got killed by a typhoon like that's not really a, you know, Where where's the incompetence but <laughs> th- this is just some fucking 47 iq shit right here th- th- this is just
1: it's 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 pretty fun these, not if you're Spanish.
0: These brothers need some Jesus. This this is just absolute cloud show. There
1: is one very funny letter from from Sidonia to Parma, where he basically says, "You know, my ships when they're at anchor, they'll be vulnerable. So you so you're you have to protect me." Essentially, meaning that he wanted Parma's completely defenseless, basically river barges to protect galleons from the enemy (laughs) yeah it was not a to a certain extent military planning at this point in time was vague compared to military planning today because you couldn't really account for everything due to just like the the delays in communication you kind of had to trust your commanders to make good decisions as they see fit so like the vagueness is not totally surprising but it really did not work well for the Spanish at this time.
0: Yeah, e- even if we're working at a point in history where mess letters take days, if not weeks, to reach people, I. I think you can at least have an established rendezvous point. I don't, I don't think that's yeah. too much to ask yeah. for.
1: You can draw a point on the map, yeah.
0: So in the end, Medina Sidonia ends up anchoring his fleet off of Calais on August the 7th and sent messengers ashore to reach Parma. When they returned, they had bad news. The bulk of Parma's army was still in Burgess. 40 miles away from the coast, and, and this is in 1588, where 40 miles w- was not an hour's ride. <laughs> yeah. Parma's fleet of landing boats was woefully unprepared in this situation. Parma stated it would take six days for him to be ready with his forces to meet the armada. But Sidonia's messengers thought it would take at least two weeks based on their own observations.
1: Now, the state of Parma's army and fleet kind of remains a matter of debate to this day, mainly because after the failure of the armada, both Parma and Sidonia would blame each other for the defeat. It does seem that Sidonia's men exaggerated the lack of preparedness on the part of Parma. Parma's men were professional soldiers and could be mustered and could march relatively quickly. And he was actually keeping most of his boats at Dunkirk, where they were protected from attack by a series of sandbanks. Um, The sandbanks meant that even though the boats were, you know, in the water, English or Dutch ships couldn't actually sail and get to them. In essence, if the Armada waited a week, the plan could still go ahead. As fate would turn out, however, the English would not give the Spanish a week worth of waiting time. On the night of August 7th, a group of eight fire ships were sent sailing towards the Armada as it lay at anchor off of Calais. Now, these were regular ships that had been stripped of most of their crew and equipment and stuffed with flammable material. The remaining crew would then sail towards the Spanish lines before setting their ships on fire and abandoning. Basically just get on a little rowboat and try to get away as fast as possible. Popular accounts after the fact frequently portray the Spanish as being terrified of the English fireships. In reality, the Spanish expected the English to use the tactic, which was well known. Upon sighting the fireships, the Spanish were able to cut their anchors and maneuver to avoid the ships, which mostly just drifted towards the shore and beached themselves harmlessly on the sand.
0: I feel like the whole fire ships tactic, or like looting a ship with explosives and setting it off, is like used all the time in like movies and historical dramas as this like crazy madcap, uh, scrappy plan. But like,
1: no, it was a routine it, thing.
0: It's a very <laughs> easy tactic to come up with, and yeah. like people knew about it.
1: Yeah, it was done pretty often.
0: Yeah, you ain't a fucking gen- you, you. You yeah, you just try and be cute. Now, while the fireships had failed to inflict damage upon the Spanish fleet, they had succeeded in forcing the Spanish to cut anchor and disperse at night. The combination of darkness and unfavorable weather meant that on the morning, the English fleet was met with the opportunity they had been waiting for, the Armada, which had been proven hard to attack as a unit was now strung out across the French coast in several small, disorganized groups. The English fleet, some 40 to 50 ships strong, sprung into action, attacking the armada's forces near the coast of Gravelines, about 15 miles west of Dunkirk. Again, Medina's Sidonia flagship, San Martin, found itself under heavy fire from the English ships, including Drake's Revenge. Dutch ships joined in the fight as well, setting upon floundering Spanish vessels. The English outnumbered the small group of Spanish ships and inflicted severe damage on them before the Spanish were able to regroup. The Spanish lost around five ships at the Battle of Gravelines, including two galleons and one galleus. San Martin remained afloat, but had taken severe damage. What is this, the fourth battle this thing's been in at this point? (laughs) While this was not a crushing defeat, it forced the Spanish away from the coast, and thus away from Parma's men.
1: While the Battle of the Graveline is today remembered as the decisive engagement of the campaign, nobody in England knew that the Spanish invasion had been thwarted at the time. In fact, even as the Spanish were defeated at sea... Thousands of English troops were mustering on land, and an intense fear of the possibility of having to face Parma's experienced army was widespread. As late as August 18th, which is when Queen Elizabeth gave her famous Tilbury speech, basically, you know, it's a kind of your stereotypical rousing speech to the soldiers, the English still feared the Spanish landing. Even even as those in England feared the Spanish invasion, the men in the Armada were racked with fear of a different reason. While they had managed to reform their fleet, the winds were now slowly pushing the Spanish ships towards the sandbanks of Flanders. In a matter of hours, the ships would run aground and their crews would be set upon by the vengeful English and Dutch. In reality, neither fear came to pass. A change of winds saved the Armada from near total destruction by allowing them to make progress to the north. On the flip side, this ended their ability to return to the coast and meet up with Parma's forces. For days, the English still feared that the Armada would change directions and attempt to link up with Parma, but such a move never came due to the winds and the generally exhausted nature of the Spanish fleet.
0: Medina Sidonia's fleet now moved slowly to the north, shadowed by the English up until they reached the seas off of Scotland. The English turned back after running out of supplies, while the Armada made its way slowly around the north of Scotland and Ireland down into the Atlantic. And then, of course, we get to the real thing that sinks the Spanish Armada, which is that 20 Spanish ships would be wrecked, mostly blown into the rocky coast of Ireland by powerful North Atlantic storms. Far more men and ships were lost to the weather during the journey back to Spain than the English during the battle. In total, around 80 of the original 130 ships sent by the Spanish would make their way back to Spain by the end of the year, the rest having been lost at various points along the way. About half of the men that had departed Spain had been lost. So there you go. Like, the Spanish planned poorly... They aren't fully organized or knowing what they're going to do. They don't have the best of a plan. The English spend a lot of time pussyfooting around, kind of like getting like sort of close, but not close enough. Then there's like one time where the Spanish are disorganized and the English are able to win what we might really call a minor victory. And then the Spanish just had sort of missed their shot and then got wrecked by a storm and it was fucking over. Like I I love how you see the Spanish Armada is this big dramatic thing and how like little drama there is in it. When you actually look at the thing itself,
1: it's a little bit like if, you know, on D day in world war two, you know, the allies cross the channel fired off a couple of shots and then like it rained and they just went home. (laughs) Now the English fleet had won, you know, a great victory against the Spanish, at least in terms of outcome, the Spanish had been deterred, but the sailors who made that victory possible would soon meet a fate a little better than that of their Spanish counterparts. The English had taken minimal casualties in their engagements with the Spanish, but upon returning to port, disease broke out amongst their ranks. For example, Mm. 200 out of the 500 men aboard the ship Elizabeth Bonaventure had died by the end of August. By September, the bulk of Howard's fleet had returned to port. Queen Elizabeth and her ministers, however, ordered Howard and the various other admirals and captains to keep their men aboard their ships. Officially, this was so that they would be ready in case the Spanish came back. Charitably, the queen may have been motivated by a desire to prevent an outbreak of illness amongst England's civilian population. In reality, she was at least partially motivated by a desire of avoiding having to pay out rewards to all the sailors in her navy. In total, nearly half of the sailors who defended England would die of disease before the remainder were permitted to leave their ships. Meaning that- Jesus Christ. (laughs) Meaning that ultimately, the casualty rate amongst the English was no better than that of their Spanish counterparts.
0: Wow, I did not know that. Holy shit! That's, I mean, that's perfect, right? For talking about a pre-modern conflict, is that half the dudes just die of disease for no fucking reason?
1: Yeah, and needless to say, that is not commonly remembered when you hear about you know the great victory of the English in fifteen eighty eight.
0: The defeat of the Spanish Armada would become seen as one of the most important celebrated moments in English history, even if it's not particularly dramatic. As the British Empire spread across the sea, the actions of 1588 were romanticized as an early example of English martial strength, a strength rooted fundamentally on the waves instead of on land. This, however, is how the Armada would be remembered years after the fact. At the time, there was no guarantee that the war would be over, that the Spanish would not try again. Indeed, the war between England and Spain was not over, as we shall cover in our next episode, when we discuss the English Armada of 1859 and the subsequent attempts by England and Spain to defeat each other at sea. You probably didn't know that there was an English Armada of 1589. Because, well, it would probably be even uh, less provincial than this one. Because <laughs> no one is competent. Jay, that's, uh, what, episode 24 in the books. Good stuff. Yeah. Remember, listeners, this is a show with no advertisements and no sponsors that's that's the word money people it's past midnight i've been fucking going hard on i did two concerts yesterday give me a fucking break (laughs) um y'all give us some rates give us some reviews if you're on the youtube fucking like fucking comment fucking subscribe fucking give us the fucking algorithm fuel for the algorithm gods, I, I do think that like, Jay, j- you ever think about how like if if an alien anthropologist studied our culture that they would hear people speaking about the algorithm and assume it was <laughs> like an eldritch deity that we worshipped?
1: Yeah, maybe some sort of cult. That's
0: that's, that's the way we speak about it. That's the way we think about it. Other than that, you can email us at nooneiscompetent at gmail.com. You can find us both on Twitter. The links are definitely in the description. Our music is by the legendary Sam Bryce, and that is going to do it for another episode. Jay, anything else people need to know?
1: No, I think that's about it.
0: All right. Y'all be good and uh, fair sailing to you.